All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I am one of your hosts. Josh Patterson, and with me today is Marty Frederick. Marty, how's it going, man? Hey, Josh. How are you doing? I'm good because I have some coffee, and that's always a, a good thing. It's a blessing I have from some, God. I have some coffee as well. Mine's from a coffee roaster called Panther in uh, Miami, and uh, it's it's pretty good. It's not my favorite, but it's, it's, it's a pretty good blend. It's nice because it's really cold today, and it's going to be even colder this week. Uh, I think it's like Wednesday night this week. It's supposed to be negative three is the temperature. And that's why I don't live in Chicago. <laughs> I mean, like, that's just like with the wind chill, it's going to be like minus 10 or something like that. Like, that's what they're forecasting. I don't know if it's going to actually happen or not, but well, it's cold. So yeah, I'll warm stick cup with, of coffee feels good. I'll stick with Maryland because that's too cold. And plus two, Marty, I was always convinced like... Uh, this this will tie into what we're talking about today, but I was always convinced. I always told people that, um, for me, hell would make more sense if it was really cold, uh, because I hate <laughs> the cold. So like I was thinking like you know if I, I mean this is like kind of a sadistic you know mind game, but if I created hell, I think what I would do is I would put everybody in ten by ten blocks outside in a blizzard, like a, a complete ridiculous snowstorm where it's snow and hail and sleet. Nobody, nobody gets to wear clothes and you have to shovel your 10 by 10 <laughs> pavement. And then if you can get the 10 by 10 completed, then you're allowed to go inside. But the problem is you can never get it completed. To me, that wow. would be hell. <laughs> I, if, if I got to keep the clothes on, that would, that I would be just fine with that. <laughs> I, I would have no problem. I love the cold. Oh, man. Um, well, I think the only thing cold is good for is ice hockey. Which That's true. You'll appreciate this, Marty, and then we'll move on because uh, we have a guest today that we we, we want to get to. But um, as you know, I started playing ice hockey, and last night we uh, we had a scrimmage, and uh, we we're in the middle of a, a line change, so I was coming off the ice, and uh, my teammates got there first because I dumped in the puck, so I was one that initiated the change. I went to go to the, the bench, but they closed both of the doors, and so I was like, all right, well, I guess now's my chance to try to go over the boards onto the bench. Um, and I'm rather short. I'm five, five. When I went to swing my leg up, I could not get it on top of the boards. And so I just fell back onto the ice and everyone laughed at me. 
Um, but they <laughs> and then you got a too many then you got a too many men penalty. <laughs> Luckily, there were no there were no refs for the scrimmage, so we were good. Uh, oh, but good, good. It was I felt accomplished. Like, well, at least I know I can't do that. So <laughs> I can go over the boards to get on the ice, just not to get off. I'll stick with the doors. Sounds good. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we do have a guest with us today, so um, we're gonna go ahead and bring them in. And uh, uh, Sharon, if you, please correct me if I say your last name wrong. But with us today, we have Sharon. Is it Putt? Yes. Awesome. So we have Sharon Putt with us today. How are you doing today, Sharon? I'm doing fine. How are y'all doing? Doing Great. good. Yeah. I don't. I'm not hurting too much from falling on the ice. Just my <laughs> ego a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, sometimes that hurts more. <laughs> it depends on who you ask, but sometimes Those that hurts more. Are harder to heal. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking time to, to be with us this morning. We're excited for our, our conversation. Um, but before we jump in, we do have a question that we ask all of our guests that come on the show. And it's one that's really important to, to both Marty and I. And so, Marty, would you like to, to ask our question? Yeah, sure. Sharon, who is your favorite hockey team? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> because I don't pay any attention to hockey, I'm going to... Just lightning. Is that a team? It is. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, the lightning, they're, they're based out of Tampa Bay. That's perfect. That's it. I've watched them play. Awesome. Well, yeah, there yeah. we go. The Tampa Bay Lightning. Not a bad, not a bad choice either. So No, they're a good yeah. team. Lots of young talent. It's a good Yeah, it was years choice. since I've been to, years and years since I've been to one of their games. But they were always fun. Yeah. I think hockey's a, a fun sport that... Um, you know, it's a really family oriented, like whenever you go to games, everything is like really big into family and they respect the kids and it's, I don't know, it's really cool. Um, but we're big hockey nuts if you can't tell. So (laughs) 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 great. Awesome. Well, um, so Sharon, can you just kind of fill us in a little bit? Uh, like, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your faith upbringing, uh, just so our listeners can kind of get to know you a little bit. Sure. Um, I uh, became a Christian when I was 26, raised four boys um, between Tampa, Florida, and Dallas, Texas. And when they all went to school, I went to school and started from scratch with an undergraduate at a seminary. I went on and got a master's and later a PhD at SMU um, and began teaching theology and religion. Um, And I've been bothered by things theologically, which the reason why I've written the books that I have uh, in order to maybe reconstruct some of these doctrines that seem to be um, promote violence. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, so uh, you mentioned the books and, and specifically the um, book that we want to talk about today, the, the concepts from a book that you put out uh, called Raising Hell, Rethinking Everything You've Been Taught About God's Wrath and God's Judgment. And so you kind of answered it um, a little bit there, but can you just tell us like why why you decided to to write this book? Yeah, I I've always been bothered by religious violence. As Christians, we should be loving our enemies and not killing them. And throughout Christian history, we've typically killed them. Yeah. <laughs> and when nine eleven happened. Um, I was just starting my PhD program, so I had been working in this area in my master's program a little bit, 
but it was it really bothered me when Jerry Falwell came out with let's blow them all away in the name of the Lord. Mm. And mm. so I thought this is this is not what Jesus would do. It's not what Jesus would teach. He'd teach let's redeem them all in the name of the Lord. Yeah. And so I wondered, I started to do a study on where these doctrines came from, where this attitude came from about it's okay to kill in the name of God. And I, I found that um, way back in medieval times, uh, popes and bishops and just normal Christians would use doctrines like the atonement and hell uh, to justify their violence because traditionally God has been depicted as pretty violent uh, within those traditional doctrines. And so I thought I'd begin with hell because it's more provocative. Mm. And actually, it was Brian McLaren's the one who said, don't do atonement first, do hell. <laughs> awesome. I said, all right, I'll, I'll do hell first. Um, then the second book, of course, is, the, is on the atonement. Um, but it's always bothered me. So I, I really took scripture um, and studied it rigorously to try to rethink these violent doctrines in ways that are more redemptive and restorative like I think God intends. Mm -hmm. So what is, this is, I mean, kind of a side question, but I, I know Brian endorsed uh, both of your books. So do you, are you like friends with Brian McLaren? Yeah. Okay, that's really cool. Yeah. We did. He's the one that got me into this. Oh, sweet. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, we, we, uh, we had the privilege of doing an episode with Brian, um, I guess it was probably about two months ago now. Uh, yeah. He was awesome to chat with as well. So that's cool. Yeah. That... yeah. Great. Well, um, so let's go ahead and, and jump in then uh, to, to some of the ideas. And so one thing that you pointed out that I think is really important, and I think often people overlook when we start talking about hell, is that when we're talking about hell, we're talking about the nature of God. We're, right. we're, we're saying something about God, right, when, when, when we dive into hell. And so uh, keeping that in mind... Um, we were thinking maybe it would be best, let's just start out uh, kind of sketching um, some more, I guess, traditional pictures, if you will, um, of like God's image, God's justice, and, and God's forgiveness. So like what is what is the starting point that, that most of your regular middle-of-the-road evangelicals are thinking about today when it comes to those things? They're thinking, I'm assuming, and I get this, because I used to think this, actually, so I'll just yeah. think, right? Sure. Um I used to think that hell was just, that people sinned, and so their just punishment was to burn in hell forever unless they had faith in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And eternal conscious torment didn't bother me. I thought it was a great marketing tool, <laughs> sure. although I wouldn't have expressed it in those terms back in those days. Um, but I was very passionate about witnessing to people just for the sole reason to keep them out of hell. Mm -hmm. I've since found there's other reasons to preach Jesus sure. other than get out of hell free card, right? But um, And so I just believed what everyone else did. And I thought it didn't bother God in the least that God had determined this is what was going to happen to people who didn't have faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just. Yeah, and I think my students think that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know for sure that's that's mm -hmm. what I you know grew up believing. That's what I grew up being taught. Actually, um, I distinctly remember 
Uh, two things that really stand out to me. One time I remember an evangelist came to the church where I went to youth group at. And it was a Southern Baptist church, so you might know where this is going. Uh, but he preached a message on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Yeah. And basically what he said is like, uh, they, they were good in the fiery furnace because they had you know Jesus with them. But you guys are going to get burned up and <laughs> it's going to suck. Do you want that? Like, um, yeah. That was kind of his message. And so that, that always stood out to me. But then the one thing... Um, that stands out to me the most, and at the time it was absolutely terrifying, and now as an adult I see kind of how ridiculous it is, um, but I was shown in a confirmation class in a Methodist church, that's where I started out, um, a video of these, uh, they were like industrial workers, they were diggers, and they were digging down, like drilling for oil or something, right? And the way the story was told is that when they were drilling, they got so close to the core of the earth that they started hearing screams, you know, of people in hell. <laughs> Seriously, Marty, you're laughing, but it's true. They, they showed us this video and then the people dropped a microphone down in there and recorded it. And you heard like, <laughs> like evil laughing and people screaming. <laughs> and they told us that's hell and that's where you're going to go unless, you know, you love Jesus. And so... um yeah, <laughs> that it was, seems like someone that had an adventurous spirit might be like, I don't know, I might might be kind of fun to go like and investigate. That <laughs> right, you know, like right. wouldn't be all that scary to everybody. I I don't know. Well, to me, that's spiritual abuse. A hundred percent, I agree. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know, there's it's one thing to to lead people to Jesus through fear which I think is the wrong motivation. Mm-hmm. And it's another thing, and that's bad news, right? You have to preach the bad news in order to bring people to Christ. Yeah. I want to be able to preach the good news. I want the good news to really be good news. So what do you preach? You lure people with love mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. promise of joy and the hope of a new kind of a life with love and compassion and grace that's, so incredibly extravagant that anybody uh, can can grab hold of it and participate in that grace. Mm-hmm. That to me is a better way to preach the gospel than scare people to death with hell. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's not spiritually abusive either. Right, <laughs> which I think is super uh, a very positive because uh, spiritual abuse is is uh, never good. And that I think I don't I can't speak for Marty, but I definitely. Um, yes, you can. Aside from that, <laughs> aside from that experience, I know for sure uh, that I have um, experienced spiritual abuse um, in a variety of ways. Actually, I would use that language to de- to describe this church that Marty and I actually worked in together. That's how we met each other. Um, mm. And I would say that uh, I was spiritually abused in that church. I don't know if Marty would say the same thing, but. Um, that was I think a, it would. I, I don't. Obviously, it wouldn't necessarily apply to our. Um, our conversation exactly today, uh, but definitely in different ways than you, Josh, for sure. No, there's no question. Sure. So. Sure. Well, yeah, so I think that's a, a really healthy motivation. I, and I kind of see too, uh, Sharon, throughout your book, I really liked how you uh, kind of, um, you presented the information, but you did so like also kind of like what with uh, weaving a narrative through of like these conversations mm-hmm. that you were having with your students. And so right. I thought what was so cool about that is – 
um, your students had all had different perspectives and were all asking these kind of questions for different reasons. Um, and then like weaving that all together, just, um, it showed like a real, in my opinion, like a real, like pastoral heart, um, and care for others as like the motivation behind why this conversation is even happening. Mm -hmm. Um, so I really appreciated that about, about your book for sure. Good. Yeah. I do have a pastor's heart for, um, my students and I want to help them grow in their faith um, help them understand what they believe and why they believe it and, and figure it out for themselves so that their faith is their own and not their parents or their pastors. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciate that. It's funny because people who read the book who are people in the church love that conversational style. Mm -hmm. And those are real people. I didn't make them up. Yeah. People in mm -hmm. academics who read the book criticize me for bringing in those conversation partners. So <laughs> it's, you know, you get both sides. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I guess you can't always please uh, both. Plus, we know academics are, well, academics, so. <laughs> yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Sweet. So let's, because um, I think pretty much, I mean, our listeners are all very familiar with um, the traditional view and concept of hell and all this kind of stuff. Um, but one thing that you mentioned was like a, a big driver for you or, or a big force behind this. Oh, was the idea of d divine violence, that divine violence has always kind of bothered you. So can we talk about maybe like reconstructing uh, divine violence uh, for a little bit? Um, like what does that look like to you? How do you understand um, violence and how has that motivated, uh, you know, your concept of, of how that you put forward in the book? How do I understand violence? Um, God's violence, you mean? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Well... There's a lot of um, passages in the Old Testament, a lot of stories where we see God as violent. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of others where we see God as not. And so I went through and looked at all of the scriptures that talk about God as violent, and then all of the scriptures where God is saying, don't do violence. Violence is against my ways. You know, he criticized people in Ezekiel because they were doing violence and therefore mm -hmm. justice was not anywhere near them. Mm -hmm. um, he calls us to be peacemakers. I don't think Sermon on the Mount um, is for a future time in eternity. I think it's for now in the kingdom of God. Mm, amen. And so, and then you look at the teachings of Jesus and the way that Jesus lived his life and it was pacifist. Mm-hmm. Even in the book of Revelation, where people say, no, Jesus is violent in the book of Revelation. Well, he's not um, violent in the book of Revelation, when you really read and look at, at what the words say. And so I like to, um, I don't want to discount the passages where God is violent in the Old Testament. But when you're interpreting scripture, you have to take into consideration the cultural that's behind the text. And people were writing, inspired writers, um, who who had cultural presuppositions. They thought a certain way about God, and those things got written into the text. And so in those days, everything that happened, you see it in cultures all around the Middle East during those days, everything that happened came from the hand of God, the good and the bad. If they had babies, it's because God 
God opened the womb. If they didn't, it's because God closed it. If it rained, it's because God opened the heavens. If there was a drought, it's because God stopped the rain from coming. If they won in battle, it's because God won it. If they didn't go into battle, it's because God said, don't do it. So, of course, those cultural perspectives are going to find their way into this inspired text. But when you look at the prophetic tradition, where the prophets are coming in and saying, God does not want violence, even the violence of the sacrificial system. And then we see that same stream of thought revealed through Jesus, who we believe as Christians, most of us, a lot of us, that Jesus is the most perfect revelation of the character of God. You have to think that God doesn't prefer the violence, that God is not violent, mm -hmm. that God only seeks to save, to restore, um, to extend grace. And we see that over and over in Scripture. So I recognize there's a different viewpoint in Scripture with God's violence. But I, because of the religious violence, have chosen my own canon within a canon, which we all do, whether we're aware of it or not. Yep. I've decided that I'm going to focus on the, I'm going to err on the side of grace. Mm -hmm. Because I think God does, from what I've read. And so I'm going to try to reconstruct these doctrines based on the majority of scripture where God is not violent and God instead wants to redeem and love even enemies. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. So it's like you use this uh, this lens of, of reading scripture through the person of Jesus, right. um, which I think is super helpful, um, especially too, because I mean, I fully agree with you. You know, the scripture tells us that that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. Um, yeah. I always tell my students, if you want to know what God is like, look to the person of Jesus. That'll answer right. your questions. God looks like Jesus always has, always will. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, <clears throat> and so I think uh, sometimes we can get tripped out when we um, pit, because sometimes I think we have, uh, like, we want to almost pit God and Jesus against each other, like these images of, of God and Jesus, right? And that's not helpful. That's bad Trinitarian theology, um, all that kind of stuff. And I, I mean, this is getting into a different subject, but even within atonement, when we start pitting God and, and Jesus against each other, that, you know, God killed Jesus, like, well, wait a minute, where was God on, you know, the day Jesus was killed? Well, he was on the cross, reckon, you know, reconciling the world to himself. Um, and so I think that's a super helpful uh, lens to read through. That's my preferred uh, lens. Um and kind of where I come from as well. And I think um, that definitely, correct me if I'm wrong, but does that fit more to like the, like a very Anabaptist uh, tradition of, of reading scripture? It does. Um, it's also closer to Eastern Orthodox. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Um, the problem, we could say it, it, it's Anabaptist because it's a, more in line with the peace tradition. Yeah. Although there's a lot of Anabaptist um, scholars and uh, church members who critique what I'm doing. Sure. Okay. So, but it is, it's more along with the peace, in line with the peace traditions and um, atonement, the executing God, the atonement book that I wrote um, is very Eastern Orthodox. And yeah. It's the, um, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I have that book too. <laughs> and we're, uh, <laughs> Yeah, we're. I think um, maybe as a little sneak preview for listeners, I think we're gearing up to do a series on atonement. So 
Uh, if you like us, Sharon, maybe you'll have to come back and talk with us again. Um, <laughs> um, but okay, cool. So um, with the idea of violence, often people say, okay, well, God needs to use violence because God is just. And God has to – yeah, I don't know. I love it. And so God has to use the violence because God is just, and that's the way to, to bring about peace. Um, and I don't think you agree with that. Um, can you talk Could a little bit – Yeah. <laughs> Could you talk uh, – let's talk about some about the, the justice of God. Okay. When I – again, when I wrote this book, I went through Scripture and read all of the um, passages that talk about justice. Because I needed to figure out what was God's justice. And when I did that, I realized that the, God's justice is a justice that satisfies God. It's a delight to God. Um, it's a justice that's restorative rather mm -hmm. than retributive. Mm -hmm. All the way through, you, you see those passages. And so if we're doing restorative justice, we really can't do a vision of hell as eternal conscious torment. Mm -hmm. Because in eternal conscious torment, there's never anybody redeemed. Hell goes on and on forever. The suffering in hell goes on and on forever. The violence of hell goes on and on forever. And how can that be just when scripture tells us that our lives are like a breath, hmm. just a breath? And so in this breath, we commit a sin and yet the punishment for that sin is eternal. Mm. Even in our justice systems in the U.S., that wouldn't fly in the courts. Right. It's, and so typical views of hell aren't just, they're unjust. Mm -hmm. Even if you're going to run a retributive line, right? But if you start running a restorative line, what's more just? To destroy, to restore all people to God through the work of Christ? Or to only restore a very small amount and all the rest suffer an unjust punishment. Mm. Then there's the question about if Jesus died for the sins of all people, and typically people who believe in hell would believe in either a satisfaction or a penal substitutionary theory of atonement. Right. If Jesus already paid the price for sin, and that sin was for all humanity, then it's double payment if somebody <laughs> has to pay for eternity for their own sin, if Jesus has already done it. Sure. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of critiques that I think hold water. And, yeah. You know, as, as you were talking, you, you used a word a few times, and uh, restorative, and I really like that word. Um, can you just, for a moment, just as kind of like a sidebar, how can, how can uh, we as believers and people that work as pastors and in churches, how can we be looking for opportunities to use restorative justice. I, I, one of the, I remember um, as I was being trained to uh, interview at places, one of the, my doors suggested always ask about a way that the church has done, um, you know, some sort of, you know, if, if they've had to discipline a church member or a pastor in the past, um, how have they done that? And, um, you know, I'm just curious to know, like, how, how does how does that restorative thought process work with us as believers and work with us as pastors and, you know, in churches? How can we apply that same concept? I know it's not exactly the same thing as what you're talking about, but that word just kind of stuck, stuck with me. So I was curious to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, and actually that's a very pertinent, significant question because often we do our theology and then we forget that it works itself out in our own lives. Yeah. Because we are believers, um, we follow Jesus, then we participate in the work of the Trinitarian God. We're not spectators. And so as we participate in the Trinitarian work of God, it's like a dance. It's called perichoresis in um, theological terms in the Greek. We actually uh, see that in Scripture um, in 2 Corinthians 5, where um, in Christ God has reconciled the world to himself. And then we're called next by not by forgiving their sin, by not counting their trespasses against them. Mm-hmm. And then it, it, it calls us to participate in that res- restoration by being ministers of reconciliation ourselves. Mm. And that's our calling, and that's a participation in the work of God in the Trinity in Ephesians. It tells us we're lifted up into the heavenlies with God where Christ is uh, seated at his right hand. And so we do have to be restoration makers, yeah. which is going after the one sheep that's lost out of the 99 like Jesus did. Mm-hmm. It's always looking to bring the person that we're talking to or dealing with or confronting lovingly back into the fold. You're never seeking to excise or um, cast out. You're always seeking even your enemies to bring them into the fold, to restore a good relationship, to bring shalom. That mm-hmm. word shalom um is a word that doesn't just mean peace. It means overall well-being in every aspect of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's, you meet with people, you talk to people, you um, negotiate lovingly, um, trying to hold back anger and instead, um, you know, conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I've, I've, I've I've found that um, oftentimes in the church, we have a hard time with that. <laughs> yeah. You know, when things are going great, everything is everything is fine. And, you know, we just kind of move within that peace process. But when peace isn't there, when something happens, when someone has wronged us or we've wronged somebody, um, oftentimes I find that um, the restorative process oftentimes gets set to the side yeah. for for the sake of saying, well, you know, should I be walked all over or should I find peace? And, you know, by Jesus' example— um, we would turn the other cheek again, um, but I, I, I think what I think what oftentimes happened. In, I mean, I'll I'll use this term loosely because it's it's kind of been stolen, I think. But the, I think within the evangelical church, um, I think the the men and women that are in leadership in those places oftentimes are not the types of people that enjoy conflict and that right. enjoy conflict resolution. I know Josh and I tend to be those types of people. Like we would rather <laughs> not ever have to deal with with conflict and so when it comes up oftentimes you know we just want it to be gone you know right. okay well if there's a way we can just make this gone immediately great um right. i i think just my personal experience has been that unfortunately there's not many people that are um working just in like the big c church um you know as pastors and as leaders that are really great at this idea of restore of restoration and redemption mm-hmm. Um, they're they're really great at knowing who not to ask to participate right. uh, as a leader or a group person or something like that. They're really great at knowing, you know, well that person wouldn't be a really great greeter uh, because they're kind of awkward or they're they're kind of strange. 
Um, but they're not so great at figuring out how to restore that person into how they could do that, you know? Right. So I, I, I find that to be uh, severely unfortunate um, because like you said, I mean, it's, it's an extremely pertinent aspect, you know, of what the church calls us to do. So, yes, it's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think uh, Marty, what you're alluding to and um, also Sharon, you were as well as I think restorative justice is more difficult. Retributive justice is easy. It's easy, you know, an eye for an eye, that's easy. Restorative justice, I think it takes time, it takes energy, it takes effort. Um, it can be extremely painful because if like, yeah. for example, if, if you're dealing with, um, you know, say God forbid something, somebody's murdered in your family, um, the easy thing to do would be say, I want that person to go on death row and to be executed. But then yeah. there is no restoration of relationship. There's no reconciliation. And so the process of actually restoring relationship with that individual, um, all that kind of stuff is way more difficult. But I think true justice is served then because then this idea of shalom, things are, are restored and, and rebalanced almost, um, if, right. if that's a fair way to say it. So I think we're, yeah. we can be afraid of restorative justice. And often people write it off as like, oh, that's hippie stuff, whatever. But I think it's because subconsciously people know it's more difficult, right? You're laughing because yeah. you know it's true. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's very yeah. uncomfortable. I mean, it's yeah. really uncomfortable and it's hard work. And it takes a sacrifice because you're negotiating, you're compromising. You might have to give something up like Jesus did in order to restore all humanity or all creation, mm. actually, mm -hmm. um, to God. And so we don't want to make those kinds of sacrifices. Right. But it's, it's a sacrificial act. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think a, a recent um, example that I saw of this this idea of restorative justice that really just, I mean, absolutely floored me. Um, I was watching a documentary uh, called Beating Guns, which is based off of Shane Claiborne's book of the same title. And in, in the book, but also in the documentary, um, they interview this lady. Uh, and when her son was three years old, he was killed by a 15-year-old in a drive-by shooting. This mother... Um, went through the painful process of restorative justice and eventually this 15 year old asked this lady to adopt him as his mother because he did not wow. have a mother or father and she yeah. did she yeah. did Amazing. Um, yeah that's restorative justice that's uh, true forgiveness um, which I think leads to a, a nice segue um, you know, one more thing before we jump into like, okay, so what can we think of as hell then? Um, but is this idea of forgiveness? Because um, I think you, you made a really interesting point um, in the book about uh, forgiveness. If, um, if, some, if there was something that has to happen in order forgiveness to take place, then that's not forgiveness. If God had to kill Jesus in order to forgive, that's not true forgiveness. Right. That's a debt. Like, so can we talk about uh, forgiveness? Yes, forgiveness means to give something away. It's a sacrifice. Uh, and if, so if somebody does you wrong, when you say, I forgive you, then you have sacrificed your right for payback in any way. Mm -hmm. And so if Jesus is being punished for our sin... That's a form of payback. Mm -hmm. It's a transactional forgiveness. I tell my students, if, 
if you owe me a hundred dollars, I give you a hundred dollars to borrow and you owe it to me. And I say, I need my hundred dollars back and you give it to me. I say, I forgive you the debt. Have I forgiven <laughs> you the debt? No, no. What if I do say, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I don't have the money, you know, break my legs if you want to, but I can't give you the money back. And Marty says, I'll pay, I'll pay the, his hundred dollars. So I take it from Marty and I say to you, I forgive your debt. Have I forgiven your debt? No. No, because I've received payback. I've balanced those accounts. The very nature of authentic forgiveness means that the accounts aren't balanced. That you're giving something away sacrificial. You're giving mm. your love and your forgiveness and your desire for reconciliation and restoration. And you take that loss into yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I think, uh, too, when it comes to forgiveness, um, often I feel like when we say that that God, that like somebody had to die or, or something like that in order for God to forgive, then it seems to me that there's some kind of outside force that is more powerful than God saying, no, you right. can't forgive until you meet my conditions. And mm -hmm. I think Orthodox Christians would not be comfortable with that because we don't want to say there's something yeah. bigger or greater than God, whatever that thing may be. Um, and so I think that's a, right. an interesting critique there um, as well. And then I think, uh, too, just when I think of forgiveness, um, and I guess in, in line with uh, atonement, um, a parable that always comes to mind is the, uh, the parable of the, the prodigal son. Uh, because in that story, um, when the son comes back, the father doesn't say, let me go beat up my slave in the shed and then I'll come out and throw a party for you. Right. He doesn't do any of that. There is automatic forgiveness immediately. There is yeah. nothing, no conditions are met. Nobody is tortured. No one is killed. There's no violence. There's just nope. instant forgiveness. Yes. Um, and I think that's a really good picture of, of exactly the kind of forgiveness that you're putting forth. Yeah, it is. And think about that. Who's doing the giving? I mean, who kills the, the, the animal to have a feast? It's not, the son isn't required to give an animal in order to have a feast to celebrate his return. Not right. only is the father forgiving, he's also giving more. Mm -hmm. He's also killing an animal in order to throw a feast and mm. to, um, give his son back his inheritance, back the stuff that he lost. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's just a beautiful picture of the over abundant, extravagant grace of God mm -hmm. for us all in with love. Absolutely. All right. So um, if we are to keep all of those things in mind and we say eternal conscious torment doesn't seem to make sense with God's image, with the justice of God, with forgiveness, um, what what then is hell? Where where should we go with this? Right, and a lot of people think I'm getting rid of hell. I'm really not. Um, I'm reinterpreting it. Okay. And raising it. I, I'm raising the traditional R A Z I N G, but theories of hell. But I'm raising R A I S I N G hell up into the realm of God. So all of this started um, when I did a search through Scripture on fire. Okay. And so. 
And and I noticed first it started with the burning bush, strangely enough. Why wasn't the bush burned up? You know? Sure. And maybe the rabbis in the midrashic material answer, why isn't the bush burnt up? But but my answer was when I compared it to other things in scripture that hit fire and weren't burned, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, we're told in Isaiah that you will walk through the fire and you will not be burned. You will walk through the flames, you will not be scorched. Those are people who are righteous. Mm, okay. So there was nothing unrighteous about the bush. There was nothing unrighteous about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's nothing unrighteous about followers of God who walk through the fire. And so, it, it, and then you see things that were burnt up, and all of those things were wicked. And so, fire that comes from God. And even what I found was interesting is the word seraph or seraphim in the plural in Hebrew. Okay. Is the word for fire. That's interesting. Yeah. So, and we're told in Daniel, God is this fire. In Hebrews, we're told he's a consuming fire. Mm -hmm. So God is that eternal fire. If there's anything that's eternal, that's fire, it's God's fire because only God is eternal. Mm. You can't have this eternal God unless it's God's eternal fire that's keeping it burning. Sure. So... Anyway, I noticed that everything that's wicked gets burnt up in this fire, and it leaves what's righteous behind. Mm -hmm. And you see that in Second um, Corinthians 3, where you're, Paul's talking about them building upon a foundation, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. And you can build upon it with wood, hay, straw, gold, silver, or precious stones. And whoever's work, you know, whoever's work remains after it goes through the fire they'll receive a reward. But if someone's work is all burnt up because it's not righteous work, he'll suffer loss, yet it says, yet he himself shall be saved yet as through fire. Mm. Because it only leaves the righteousness behind. Mm. So keeping that in mind, that fire just burns up righteousness, it's God's fire because only God is eternal and the fire from God is eternal. Let me just give you a little scenario. And this is really nothing new um it's it's a contemporary way of expressing ancient eastern orthodox theology okay right, the education process but let's just say think of who do you think is just a terribly evil person irredeemably evil in history or contemporary um i, I think probably hitler comes to mind for most people it does mm -hmm. yeah so and then i think that's what i used in the book was hitler maybe maybe i not. think so yeah that or like stalin somebody along those lines yeah. So, okay, Hitler. So Hitler is on his deathbed and he is, hates God. He's angry at God. And because he knows he's in trouble. He knows that he's going to get the thumbscrews put to him. And he's, he's just furious about it. And he hates God for it. And so Hitler dies and he's standing before God, like scripture tells us we all will. And God is a consuming fire. And so he's standing there knowing he's going to be condemned and he's going to hear all these awful things and he's going to be thrown in eternal conscious torment and God's going to be angry at him. But as the fire begins to burn, he realizes, and this happens, you know, this is metaphor, right? We're talking instant. It's not a purgatory or anything other than the thought that it's purging, like the word would suggest. Sure. And so he's standing there in that fire and it begins to burn away the wickedness. <laughs> And Hitler all of a sudden realizes, I'm not receiving condemnation. This is an incredible, fiery, passionate love that's burning away this wickedness. And he's 
he's just dumbstruck by this unorthodox approach mm. to his sin in his life. And and as the fire continues to burn, he's all of a sudden just remorse, totally remorseful. He's inconsolably grief-stricken over the pain that he's caused other people and the horrible things he's done in his life. And the closer he walks toward God, the more the wickedness is burnt off. And he's just totally undone by this unorthodox show of extravagant grace and the fiery burning of God's love that's drawing him in rather than casting him away. And he finally stands before God. All the wickedness is gone. There's only a righteous person left, right? Like we were created to begin with. Mm -hmm. And he hears Jesus say, you are forgiven your sins. You stand righteous before me by the power of my blood and the love of God. Do you enter my kingdom? Will you enter? What's Hitler going to say? What is any righteous person <laughs> with no wickedness left going to say? Mm -hmm. They're going to say yes. Mm -hmm. And so hell, going through that experience was hell for Hitler. Having his wickedness burnt off, having all of his sin come before him flashing before his eyes, feeling the pain of others that he inflicted upon them. And and that's hell. As this purification process um, continues to burn away the wickedness. Mm -hmm. uh, and to me, that's what one of the expressions of hell. There's hell on earth, right? As sure. Well, but, sure. Um, but it's a it's a hospitable hell. It's a hell that burns in order to um bring someone into the fold back into the fold to mm -hmm. allow love to do its work um, and restore so what brings god more glory a picture of god who works to restore through the fiery burning love that burns away wickedness that's a painful process and then everybody who at the end says yes i'll enter your kingdom as righteous people does that bring more glory to think that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess God is, you know, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Or the fact that maybe two-thirds of the world's population, like I was taught right in my evangelical church, or more than that actually, is going to suffer eternal conscious torment forever and ever in a place where wickedness continues, pain continues. Um, does that bring more glory to God? Or does an image of restoration and reconciliation of all creation bring more glory to God? Which mm -hmm. is a powerful God? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, it, the restorative God is so much bigger to me than yeah. the the image of the the retributive God. And like you're saying, um, I think people often don't think about this. But if if hell is this eternal conscious torment, then God is the one sustaining that. Exactly. God is sustaining evil. God is sustaining wickedness. God is sustaining pain and suffering. And mm -hmm. I don't, that's not, that doesn't seem to be the God that we find in scripture at no. all, especially not the God we see in the person of, of, of Jesus. And so I right. think this restorative um, image is, is so much bigger. I think so much more powerful, so much more beautiful. Um, and also it still takes sin very seriously. <laughs> Uh, oh. Because sin is still, you have to face it, just like you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's that's really a, a powerful image. 
Um, but I do know one thing that people uh, often ask when you when you you know show something like this is they'll say, okay, well then why did Jesus have to die? What's the point of that? <laughs> so we have we have a couple more minutes here to be faithful to your time. Can we touch on that a little bit? A couple more minutes to tell you why Jesus had to die. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a it's rough. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, and. You may want to ask, why did Jesus have to live? Mm, that's a much better question. I agree. Um, and Thomas Aquinas, um, old dead guy theologian, <laughs> um, he said there's five reasons for why Jesus had to die on the cross. And the last of which was um, the satisfaction theory of atonement. <clears throat> All the others were showing an example. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, I have four boys and when they were little, they're all grown now, grandchildren, but when they were little, um, I'd be upstairs putting laundry away or something, and they'd be downstairs, and boys, uh, even, you know, all children, not just boys, but kids get together, and there's four of them, and they're kicking a ball around downstairs, and I hear them, and I'll yell downstairs, you guys stop throwing the ball around, you're going to break <laughs> something, and that happens a couple times, and finally, on the third time, I yell down there, do I have to come down there? <laughs> And the answer is yes, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's God saying, I, I guess I've got to come down there. And we see that in the parable, right, of the, um, in, in the Gospels, that G he finally ends up sending Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus comes on a mission to live the human life, to reveal himself and to reveal God to all people so that they know how to walk the way of Jesus. Mm -hmm. He's the way the truth of the life. And that way means walking in the ways that he taught. And so he had to come to show the path of restoration and redemption and reconciliation mm -hmm. to um, reveal that to us. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot that goes into it that, that we could, you know, if we had more time or if we talk about atonement, we can get into that. Yeah, absolutely. But there's also um, the thought that he came to do that, but what was going to happen to a man in the Middle East, in Israel, during those days of Roman rule, who was basically stirring the pot? <laughs> those people were called zealots, and they were crucified. Mm -hmm. And the road between Nazareth and Tiberias especially, and every place else in Jerusalem, Rows were often lined with thousands of people hanging on crosses because that's what the Romans did to people in those days. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that Jesus was crucified, given his message, is not a surprise. And mm -hmm. so you see him in the garden saying, Father, let this cup be passed from me, but not your will, my will, but your will be done. Do I have to finish my mission? Do I really have to see this to the end because I know it's leading to a very painful death? And even in that death, he gave us a perfect example when hanging from the cross with the power of God and angels behind him he said father forgive them they don't know what they're doing mm -hmm. he didn't say smite these people this hurts you know kill them all wipe them out God please no he revealed the greatest sacrifice of all when he laid down his life for his friends and he asked forgiveness for the very ones who were killing them mm -hmm. yeah yeah, that's, uh, I like to, when I talk to my students, um, so I'm a, I don't think I mentioned this to you, Sharon, but I'm a full-time high school and young adult pastor. 
Um, So that's what I do. Uh, But when I talk to my students about this idea of atonement, I talk about um, how it's, you know, silly to say that God killed Jesus because, you know, Scripture tells us that that God was there on the cross reconciling the world to himself. Um, But rather a way that I like to think about it and, and express to my students is that what we see happening on the cross is not a revelation of who, uh, well, I don't want to say it's not a revelation of who God is, but the, the, the behavior that happens to Christ is more revelation about people. That's right. Um, and that what we see happening is the creator of the entire universe allowing the worst possible evil you could imagine to happen, his own creation killing him. Right. And so he steps into death, um, you know, even, you know, scripture says even death on a cross. And then kind of, uh, I, I, you know, picture that scene in men in black where, um, he's engulfed by that alien <laughs> and then blows it apart from the inside out. Yeah. So that's like what Jesus did to death, right? He's right. God steps into death, steps into our, our condition, fully identifies with humanity and then poof, destroys death from the inside out. Um, Which means he gives life. Absolutely. So, so it's not, we should celebrate not the death of Christ, but we need to celebrate the life that Christ gives. Mm, amen. It's all about life. The yeah. blood and everything is all about life. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've found that the best, um, you know, Good Friday services uh, remain focused on that, but allow yeah. allow there to be hope that brings right. that leads to what Sunday brings. Um, there's been there's been oftentimes where I've I've gone to Good Friday services where uh, it's it's like bright and cheerful and happy and exciting and they they kind of they almost they almost kind of give away uh, in some ways like what's going to be happening on Sunday and like that Jesus is rising from the dead and I don't know if it's just the creative in me but there's something there's something different about that tension um, that really just I think brings beauty to. Uh, you know, sitting in that and, you know, saying not not to be heretical, but to say, you know, if you could have been there that day as one of Jesus disciples watching him being crucified on the cross, imagine the pain that you would have felt the rest of that day and then the rest of the next day. And no, it's like thinking I gave my life to this and, you know, what maybe he wasn't really who he said he was. And then Sunday's the joy that you find that out. Like Peter and the other disciple run to the tomb. They're so excited to get there. Um, Mary is her first. A shout out uh, listening. <laughs> uh, Mary, Mary was there first, so she deserves the credit. Um, but but still, you think about that joy of running to the tomb mm-hmm. and just so excited that he really is who he said he was. That's what it's about. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's not about celebrating the death, like you said, but more so mm-hmm. celebrating the life that that death brings. Yeah. Because we're on the other side of the resurrection now. Absolutely. Yeah. So all we have to do is, is celebrate the life that Jesus gives us. Mm-hmm. Now he died in order to give us that life. Yeah. But even the death was all about the life. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah. And now we have his life. He's given us his eternal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's a joyous thing. That's good news. Amen. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, Sharon, thank you so much uh, for today. Thank you for again for giving us your time. And yeah. uh, hopefully, like I said, if you enjoyed us uh, or enjoyed talking with us, maybe we can work something out and, and talk uh, more about the atonement with you uh, some other time. That would be awesome. Absolutely. Anytime. 
Great, well, so what we're gonna do is we'll be sure to link uh, Raising Hell, and also I'm gonna go ahead and put, um, it's Executing God, right? That's the title right. of the other book. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and link both of those in our show notes. Um, okay. is, is there anywhere else that uh, you would like to direct people, like a website or social media or anything like that? No, I do okay. have a book out in December. Oh, um, cool. It's a nonviolent theology of love, and it's a systematic sort of topical theology that's all about how can you conceive theology in every topic category as God is nonviolent, and therefore how we behave. Well, I know what book I'm putting on my wish list next. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I'm excited to, uh, I'll have to check that out for sure. Um, great. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. Uh, for our yep. listeners, uh, thanks for hanging out with us today. Uh, be sure to pick up uh, copies of, of Sharon's work and uh, share it with the people that you know um, it would be helpful to. And uh, as always, go Caps. And go Blackhawks and go Lightning on behalf of Sharon. Okay, <laughs> <laughs>